The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 7 through 14. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Samuel remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at that set time, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. Uh, pray with me if you would as we open the scriptures. Oh, Lord, our God, we bless and thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, grant me both the humility and the boldness necessary to preach it. Would you prepare our hearts and lives to be strengthened and changed by it? We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, today's the first Sunday of the church calendar season called Lent. Uh, a number of you have a Catholic background, and so Lent, like you, you know Lent. Uh, a number of you don't have a Catholic background, and especially if, you're, if you have a lot of Baptist background, most Baptists don't think a lot about Lent. It's not just part of what we do. Uh, we don't make as big a deal of it. Uh, big picture, Lent is the 40-day season that leads up to Easter. Uh, traditionally, there's a fast associated with Lent, and we're going to talk more about that next week. But during Lent this week, during, or year, during the Lent season on Sundays, uh, we're going to focus our sermon series on what are traditionally known as the seven deadly sins. So we're going to really, really be uplifting and encouraging uh, the next 40 days. Uh, the seven deadly sins, maybe you've heard of them. There was a movie, believe it, almost, almost 30 years ago. Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt were in a movie about the seven deadly sins. Um, we hear about them. We maybe kind of in culture here and there we've heard. Um, we don't know much about them. And in fact, uh, the Bible actually never talks about seven deadly sins. The Bible never says there are seven sins that are deadly and all the others are, you know, maybe not as, not as bad. So why are we going to talk about the seven deadly sins for the next, there are actually six Sundays between, including today, between now and Easter, so we're going to smoosh two of them together next week. Uh, it's a list that comes from church tradition from the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries B.C., and a lot of early church leaders were trying to just wrap their heads around what is the Christian faith and what is it that God calls us to do. And they came up with, they came up with all sorts of lists, and, and this is kind of one of those lists, just to try to help make sense of their faith. And in fact, there's not only seven deadly sins, there are seven corresponding virtues. They're often called the seven heavenly virtues. 
So each of them has kind of a counterpoint. They're, they're not really a biblical category that at least comes straight from the Bible. But certainly they are biblical in that they take uh, themes from the Bible, and it's just a way of organizing biblical thoughts. And the reason they're so helpful for us and that we're going to focus on them is because they help give us categories for thinking more deeply about sin and holiness. We don't talk a lot about sin. Um, there's a tool, if, uh, Google, Google has a project called Google Books where they're trying to scan every single book that's ever been printed and catalog it and index it. And going along with that, because they're Google, uh, they've created this, this tool called the Ngram, the letter N and then Gram. And, and so you can go to, if you look up Google Ngram, you can look up a certain word and they will tell you how often that word appeared in print every year from the beginning of their efforts So like their first books that they have are published in the 1600s. So from the 1600s to today, how often did that word appear, how frequently in print? And you can actually see that, you know, some words used to appear a lot and now don't appear, or some words. So like, for instance, the word therapy was never, almost never used in print before the word, before 1900. Nowadays, therapy is through the roof, and there are all sorts of books and printed materials that have the word therapy. So you can, you can identify cultural trends by seeing what, use, what words were used more or less frequently. If you type sin into Google Ngrams, you'll find that the word sin is used less than 25% as frequently now as it was 100 to 150 years ago. See, we just, we just don't think, we don't like thinking or talking about sin. We don't think or talk about it. But we, we need to, and in Lent especially, as we're building up to Easter, Good Friday when Jesus was crucified, and Easter when Jesus rose from the dead, the more we think about sin and holiness, the deeper in appreciation we will gain for the love, just the deep, incredible love of Jesus. We don't like to talk about it, but, but we have to. To not talk about sin would kind of be like, like, um, like hearing a doctor say, you have cancer, and you thinking, well, maybe if I just don't think about it, it'll go away. That wouldn't work. No, you you have to deal with it. And so this morning, we're going to start looking at the first of the deadly sins, the so-called deadly sins, which is pride. And there's a corresponding virtue that goes along with pride, which is humility. Uh, St. Augustine, a church leader in the four and five hundreds AD, um, said that pride is the source of all other sins. That, that every other sin can kind of trace its roots to pride. And we're going to think a little bit about pride by looking at the story of Saul, who was Israel's first king. This is the very beginning of, of Israel's uh, time with the king. They didn't have a king before Saul. And we're going to look actually at his first week as king. Saul is instructive as a king because he, he gets off to a terrible start like right off the bat, his first week. We're going to camp this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 13, but in order to get there, I've got to fill you in just a little bit on what happened. In chapter 10, Samuel, a prophet, approaches Saul and he says, you're going to be the king, and he anoints him, which means he pours oil over him, and that was a traditional way of showing that somebody was going to be a king in ancient Israel. And then he gives him one command— He says, go down ahead of me to Gilgal, which is just another area in ancient uh, Israel, and I'll come after you to to make sacrifices and burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days 
until I come to you and tell you what you're to do. So go to Gilgal, wait seven days, and then I'll come and we'll make these sacrifices that we're supposed to make. So Saul obeys, he goes down to Gilgal, and then we see in chapter 12, while he's waiting, the Philistines appear. The Philistines are Israel's enemies. They're the bad guys. And they come with an, uh, an army, a big army. Such a big army that a lot of Saul's soldiers, remember, he's, he's been commander-in-chief for less than a week, and now Saul's army, the Israelites, are starting to scatter. They're starting to desert. This, this is Saul's first great leadership test. And this is when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And Saul waited seven days. This is verse 8, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come. The prophet who speaks for God has told you to do something. You do it. He says he'll come. You wait, and now he's not coming. Meanwhile, you're looking out at the enemy, and they're getting bigger, and you're looking at your army, and it's getting smaller because people are just leaving. What do you think is going through his mind? What, what should he do? What would you do? What would you do? Leadership often means making hard decisions when the answer either isn't clear or isn't easy. What should Saul do? He starts making an offering. We're not going to get into offerings and sacrifices, but he finds some animals, presumably, and sacrifices them and burns them as an offering to God. And right as he's wrapping up, Samuel shows up. (laughs) This is verse 11. And Samuel asked, What have you done? What have you done? And Saul replied, well, when I saw my men scattering and and you didn't come. (laughs) That's not even passive-aggressive. That's just aggressive-aggressive. When I saw that the men were scattering and you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling, I thought, well, now the Philistines are going to come against me and I I haven't sought the Lord's favor. It was traditional that that ancient Israelite leaders would offer, not just Israelites, they would offer sacrifices to their gods to get God's favor so that they could win the battle. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now, here, this, is, this is kind of the key question here. Like from the, from the looks of it, at the outside, Saul didn't do anything wrong. Right? He did what Samuel told him to do, and Samuel hadn't come yet. And Saul, sure, he offered an offering, but it's not like, it's not like he sacrificed to a different god. Some of the worst sins, if you could call them that, in the Old Testament is when people offer sacrifices to gods other than Yahweh, Israel's God, the true God. It's not like he offered a sacrifice to an idol or to a different god. It's not like he offered a sacrifice to Yahweh, the one true God, and he did it right, and he did it by the law. So what's the problem? The problem is simple. God had said, Wait wait. And Saul didn't wait. Samuel explains a little more in verse 13. He says, you acted foolishly. You haven't kept the command the Lord your God gave. If you had, if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people 
because you have not kept the Lord's command. Seems like the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime. Like, come on, the guy offered a sacrifice a little too early. But what what does Samuel say? He says, you haven't kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Now, in the Old Testament, sacrifices are, um, they're not something you do just to get God on your side. They're not, that would would make it kind of a manipulative tool. Uh, They're simply put, they're just acts of worship. And this can be kind of a subtle distinction, but it's, it's very, very important. Worship, we say this a lot, worship is not just getting together on a Sunday morning and singing some songs and listening to a sermon. Worship is something that, sh- that, that is God intends to be all of our life. And worship means we do things on God's terms, whether or not they make sense to us. Worship means we do things on God's terms, whether or not they make sense to us. It, it makes no sense to be kind to your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. But Jesus says, be kind to your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It makes no sense to give a sacrificial portion of your income, which for most of us is probably in the neighborhood of at least 10%, when there's so many other expenses we have. But God says, give and give sacrificially and give generously. It makes no sense to wait to make the sacrifice and the burnt offering when you know you have to make the sacrifice before you go to battle and you know the enemy's army is bearing down on you and you can't slow them down. But God says, wait. And so when Saul saw his people packing their bags, he saw his soldiers throwing down their weapons and leaving and he saw the Philistines bearing down. He did kind of the right thing. He made the sacrifices, but he did the right thing the wrong way. He didn't wait. It's not practical. This was not a practical move, but, but let's face it, like following Jesus is not a practical move. And it shows us that the, even doing the right thing the wrong way turns out to be the wrong thing. The right thing done the wrong way is the wrong thing in God's eyes. A different way of putting it is that, no, the ends do not justify the means. Because God says it's not about the thing itself, it's actually about the heart behind the thing. If you skip ahead two chapters later to chapter 15, Samuel's going to ask this, he's going to make a point, but he's asking these rhetorical questions to Saul. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Then he kind of explains himself as if he needed to. To obey is better than sacrifice. and To heed is better than the fat of rams. But because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. In essence, Saul went through the motions of worship. To to an outside observer, it looked like he did everything just the way he was supposed to do it. He offered the sacrifice. But his heart was far from worship. 
His focus wasn't on worshiping and obeying God when God had said to wait. What was it on? We don't know exactly what it was on. We can imagine maybe it was something like, my soldiers are deserting me, and I've got to be the leader, the leader, and leaders take initiative. So I'm I'm just going to do this thing. Maybe he was thinking about how he's going to look. What what will a, a major military loss in my first week as king do for my legacy? And Samuel's not even here. See? We don't know what was going on in his mind, but we know that whatever it was, it was hiding under a thin veneer of righteousness. This is where, this is where we can start making some connections to pride. Because pride often, it can often look good. It's It's subtle. We can hide it. We can cover over it. We can pretend like it's not there. It's, it's, used, it's most effective, in fact, when it's not over the top, when it's not bombastic, when it's not obviously narcissistic. In fact, perhaps the greatest pride is to think that we have no pride. Uh, St. Augustine, again, he, he defines pride and he puts it this way. This is 1,500 years ago, so old-fashioned language. I'll read it a couple times just to let it sink in. He says, Pride is when the soul abandons him, talking about God, to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. Pride is when the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and instead becomes a kind of end to itself. If we had to translate into simple 21st century terms, we would say, Pride is when we abandon God and God's ways and focus instead or resort instead to me and my ways. It's doing things my way because the way that God has laid out just doesn't make sense to me. Or pride is doing something because I'm worried about how something will make me look. How will I look in front of the Israelites? They just crowned me as their king. And now I lead them into a a loss. How will I look in front of my parents? How will I look in front of my kids? How will I look in front of my boss if they find out I didn't make that deadline? How will I look in front of my friends or my teachers? How will I look in front of my pastor? How will I look in front of that person that I really want to impress? Do I say certain things or not say certain things? Do I post certain things to social media or comments or words or phrases that will, that will make me look good? What, how will I look? In fact, pride can masquerade. It can disguise itself as humility. There's a little bit of this, I think, going on in, in what Saul did. Think about it. Think about somebody, we've, we've all met that person um, who, who constantly kind of talks about how down they are, how weak they are, how they don't measure up, right? I'm, I'm going to overstate. They don't usually say it this way, but you, you get the idea. Oh, I'm just, I'm just no good. We see it spiritually. I'm just nothing but a dirty, rotten, no good sinner. I never get anything right. It sounds like humility because they're not talking about how great they are. But it's not humility, it's pride. How do I know? Because the sentence always, always, always starts I. 
I'm no good. I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner. I never measure up. I never get it right. I, I, I. It's all about the self, you see? It's pride. And pride is pervasive. I mean, it, it sinks its roots into every part of our life. C.S. Lewis wrote that, um, that every other sin can, can trace itself to pride, or a different way of saying it is every other sin is kind of a form of pride somehow. Here's what he writes. He says, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of those are mere flea bites in comparison. He said it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, and it's the complete anti-God state of mind. The truth is, when we start peeling back layers, we realize that we, we all are proud. We all have an awful lot of pride, if nothing else, because we all think an awful lot of ourselves. We've all been bitten by that, that snake, and pride just courses through our veins. So what do we do? Well, just be humble. Easy. Right? <laughs> Wrong. Wrong, of course. One, because like, we, just, we just know from experience it doesn't work. You can't just try harder at being humble. You can't do the impossible. And actually, it would be a self-defeating thing because what? If, if Chris is going to try harder to be humble, okay, Chris, I'm going to try harder to be humble. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And what am I thinking about? Me, me, me. Like by trying to just work harder at being humble, I'm getting more proud. You see? <laughs> it's completely self-defeating. It doesn't work. We have to direct our focus elsewhere. Somewhere else. Where? Let me point you back to verse 13. Remember what Samuel said to Saul? You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Who's the only person in history who did keep the command the Lord their God gave them? Who's the one whose kingdom over Israel and over the world has been established for all time? We don't squash pride by just working harder at being humble. <laughs> Doesn't work. We squash pride by looking to the one who was truly humble. The answer is not in your effort it's not in what you do. The answer is in what Jesus has done. And friends, as we look towards Lent and as we look towards Good Friday and the cross that Jesus hung on, we realize that that is where we see true humility. In fact, that's where we see humiliation. The king of the universe who triumphantly entered the city that he was conquering, I use that in air quotes, riding not in a chariot but on a donkey. Who achieved victory over death, not by lording something over death, but by actually submitting to death. And who achieved victory over sin, not by just telling us to get over it, but by becoming sin for us. That's 1 Corinthians 5. It says, he became, he became sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If Paul is to to be believed there in 1 Corinthians 5, then Jesus, in the most profound act of humility as he hung on the cross, he didn't just like somehow take on our pride, he became our pride. That's a mystery. I I don't understand what that means exactly or how that works. But as Jesus was nailed to the cross, your pride and my pride were nailed to the cross, crucified. And the life of your pride and my pride slowly seeped out and dripped to the ground, just as Jesus' blood seeped out and dripped to the ground. Jesus, friends, Jesus is the answer to our pride. Solution is not just work harder, get better, get over it. That doesn't work. The solution, instead of shining the spotlight on yourself, is to shine the spotlight on Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. Is there a greater act of humility than the king of the universe giving his life? Put it this way. When, when you realize that your pride is so far-reaching and so egregious that only the death of God himself can heal it, then where is there any room for pride? There isn't. Like, that will suffocate your pride. If my pride, my insistence on my way, my self-absorption demanded of God himself his very life, I have no basis to be proud of anything. You see? Killing pride doesn't start with trying harder to be humble. It starts with looking to the one who humbled himself to the form of death, even death on a cross. Your own humility will not earn God's favor. But knowing that God favors you, pride and all, knowing that he loves you, sin and all, and was willing to die for you even in your sin, (laughs) that will develop the humility that God calls us to. You see, everything starts with Jesus. Everything starts with knowing him and seeing him and paying attention to him and embracing the fact that he loves you. He gave himself for you. In other words, you, this is kind of our theme in a sense for the whole series. It's kind of the theme of the Christian life that you don't become a Christian because you're so moral or because you're so virtuous. No, being a Christian makes you more moral or more virtuous. You don't earn God's favor through your morality or through your humility. But realizing that God has favored you already, that will develop the morality, the virtue, in today's case, the humility that he calls us to. Do you believe that? It's the only thing that will heal you. Nothing else will. Do you want to be healed? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you heal us? Heal us of our pride, of 
constantly thinking about ourselves, of constantly thinking how we would do things, of constantly just self, 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 self. Heal us. We know the only way that we can be healed is through the cross. So we recognize that. We lay claim to that as our own. We claim Jesus as our own. Make us new. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.